Section 1 of Mystery at Geneva, An Improbable Tale of Singular Happenings. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Mystery at Geneva, An Improbable Tale of Singular Happenings, by Dame Rose Macaulay. Note. As I have observed among readers and critics a tendency to discern satire where none is intended, I should like to say that this book is simply a straightforward mystery story, devoid of irony, moral or meaning. It has for its setting an imaginary session of the League of Nations Assembly, but it is in no sense a study of, still less a skit on, actual conditions at Geneva, of which indeed I know little, the only connection I have ever had with the League being membership of its union. CHAPTER One. Henry, looking disgusted, as well he might, picked his way down the dark and dirty corkscrew stairway of the dilapidated fifteenth-century house where he had rooms during the fourth, or possibly it was the fifth, assembly of the League of Nations. The stairway, smelling of fish, and worse, opened out on to a narrow cobbled alley that ran between lofty medieval houses down from the Rue du Temple to the Quai du Sujet in the ancient wharfside quarter of Saint-Gervais. Henry, pale and melancholy, his soft hat slouched over his face, looked what he was, a badly paid newspaper correspondent lodging in unclean rooms. He looked hungry, he looked embittered, he looked like one of the underdogs whose time had not yet come, would indeed never come. He looked, however, a gentleman, which, in the usual sense of the word, he was not. He was of middle height, slim and not inelegant of build. His trousers, though shiny, were creased in the right place. His coat fitted him, though it lacked two buttons, and he dangled a monocle, which he screwed impartially now into one brown eye, now into the other. If any one would know, as they very properly might, whether Henry was a bad man or a good, I can only reply that we are all of us mixed, and most of us not very well mixed. Henry was, in fact, at the moment a journalist, and wrote for the British Bolshevist, a revolutionary paper with a startlingly small circulation. And now the reader knows the very worst of Henry, which is to say a great deal, but must all the same be said. Such as he was, Henry, on this fine Sunday morning in September, strolled down the Allée Petit Chat, which did not seem to him, as it seems to most English visitors, in the least picturesque. For Henry was a quarter Italian, and preferred new streets and buildings to old. Having arrived at the Quai du Mont Blanc, he walked along it, brooding on this and that, gazing with a bitter kind of envy at the hotels which were even now opening their portals to those more fortunate than he. The Bergue, the Paix, the Beau Rivage, the Angleterre, the Russie, the Richemonde. All these hostels were, on this Sunday morning before the opening of the Assembly, receiving the delegates of the nations, their staffs and secretaries, and even journalists. Crowds of little grey-faced Japs processed into the Hôtel de la Paix. The entrance-hall of Les Bergues was alive with the splendid, full-throated converse of Latin Americans. Ah, oh, they live, those Spaniards, Henry sighed. While at the Beau Rivage, the British Empire and the Dominions hastened, with the morbid ardour of their race, to plunge into baths after their night journey. Baths, thought Henry bitterly. There were no baths in the Allée Petit Chat. All his bathing must be done in the lake, and cold comfort that was. Henry was no lover of cold water. He preferred it warm. These full-fed, well-housed, nobly cleaned delegates. Henry quite untruly reported to his newspaper, which resented the high living of others, that some of them occupied as many as half a dozen rooms apiece in the hotels, with their typists, their secretaries, and their sycophantic suites. 
even the journalists, lodging less proudly in smaller hotels or in apartments, all lodged cleanly, all decently, excepting only Henry, the accredited representative of the British Bolshevist. Bitterly and proudly, with a faint sneer twisting his lips, Henry, leaning against the lakeside parapet, watched the tumultuous arrival of the organizers of peace on earth. The makers of the new world. What new world? Where tarried it? How slow were its makers at their creative task! Slow and unsure, thought Henry, whose newspaper was not of those who approved the League. With a sardonic smile, Henry turned on his heel and pursued his way along the quay towards that immense hotel where the League Secretariat lived and moved and had its being. He would interview someone there and try to secure a good place in the press gallery. The Secretariat officials were kind to journalists, even to journalists on the British Bolshevist, a newspaper which was of no use to the League, and which the Secretariat despised, as they might despise the yapping of a tiresome and insignificant small dog. CHAPTER Two. The Secretariat were in a state of disturbance and expectation. The annual break in their toilsome and rather tedious year was upon them. For a month their labours would be, indeed, increased, but life would also move. One wearied of Geneva, its small and segregated society, its official gossip, the Calvinistic atmosphere of the natives, its dreary winter, its oppressive summer, its eternal lake and distant mountains, its horrid little steamboats rushing perpetually across and across from one side of the water to the other. One wearied of Geneva as a place of residence. What was it, though it had its own charm, as a dwelling-place for those of civilized and cosmopolitan minds? Vienna now would be better, or Brussels, even the poor old Hague with its ill-fated traditions, or, said the French members of the staff, Paris, for the French nation and government were increasingly attached to the League, and had long thought that Paris was its fitting home. It would be safer there. However, it was at Geneva, and it was very dull except at assembly time, or when the council were in session. Assembly time was stimulating and entertaining. One saw then people from the outside world. Things hummed. Old friends gathered together. New friends were made. The nations met. The assembly assembled. Committees committeed. The council counseled. Grievances were aired, and either remedied or not. Questions were raised and sometimes solved. Governments were petitioned, commissions were sent to investigate, quarrels were pursued, judgments pronounced, current wars deplored, the year's work reviewed. Eloquence rang from that world platform to be heard at large through the vastly various voices of a thousand newspapers in a hundred rather apathetic countries. In spite of the great eloquence, industry, intelligence, and many activities of the delegates, there was, in that cosmopolitan and cynical body, the Secretariat, a tendency to regard them, en masse, rather as children to be kept in order, though to be given a reasonable amount of liberty in such harmless amusements as talking on platforms. Treats, dinners, and excursions were arranged for them. The Secretariat liked to see them having a good time. They would meet in the assembly hall each morning to talk, before an audience. Noble sentiments would then exalt and move the nations, and be flashed across Europe by journalists but in the afternoons they would cross the lake again to the Palais des Nations, and meet in rooms A, B, C, or D, round tables, magic phrase, magic arrangement of furniture and human beings, in large or small groups, and do the work. The assembly hall was, so to speak, the front window, where the goods were displayed, but where one got away with the goods was in the back parlour. There, too, the fiercest international questions boiled up, boiled over, and were cooled by the calming temperature of the table, 
and the sweet but firm reasonableness of some of the representatives of the more considerable powers. The committee meetings were, in fact, not only more effective than the assembly meetings, but more stimulating, more amusing. Henry, entering the Palais des Nations, found it in a state of brilliant bustle. The big hall hummed with animated talk and cheerful greetings in many tongues, and members of the continental races shook one another ardently and frequently by the hand. How dull it would be, thought Henry, if ever the Esperanto people got their way, and the flavour of the richly various speech of the nations was lost in one colourless, absurd, and inorganic language, stumblingly spoken and ill-understood. Henry entered a lift, was enclosed with a cynical American, a brilliant-looking Spaniard, a tall and elegant woman of assurance and beauty, and an intelligent-faced cosmopolitan who looked like a British-Italian Latin-American Finn, which in point of fact he was. Alighting at the third floor, Henry found his way to the department he required, and introduced himself to one of its officials, who gave him a pink card, assigning him to a seat in the press-gallery, which he felt would not be one he would really like. "'You've not been out here before, have you?' said the official, and Henry agreed that this was so. "'Well, of course, we don't expect much of a show from your fanatical paper.' The official was good-humoured, friendly, and tolerant. The secretariat were, indeed, sincerely indifferent to the commentary on their proceedings, both of the Morning Post and the British Bolshevist, for both could be taken for granted. One of these journals feared that the League sought disarmament, the other that it did not. To one it was a League of Cranks, conscientious objectors, and, fearful and sinister word, internationals, come not to destroy but to fulfil the covenant, bent on carrying out Article Eight substituting judiciary arbitration for force, and treating Germany as a brother. To the other it was a league of militarist and capitalist states, an extension of the supreme allied council, bent on destroying Article 18 and other inconvenient articles of the covenant, and treating Germany as a dog. To both it was, in one word, poppycock. Sincerely, honestly, and ardently both these journals thought like that. They could not help it. It was temperamental and the way they saw things. CHAPTER Three. Henry descended the broad and shallow double stairway of the Palais des Nations, up and down which tripped the gay crowds, who knew one another but knew not him, and so out to lunch, which he had poorly, inexpensively, obscurely, and alone, at a low eating-house near the secretariat. After lunch he had coffee at a higher eating-house on the quay, and sat under the pavement awning, reading the papers, listening to the band, looking at the mountain-view across the lake and waiting until the other visitors to Geneva, having finished their more considerable luncheons, should emerge from their hotels and begin to walk or drive along the quay. Meanwhile he read L'Humeur, which he found on the table before him. But L'Humeur is not really very funny. It has only one joke, only one type of comic picture, a woman incompletely dressed. Was that, Henry speculated, really funny? It happens, after all, to nearly all women at least every morning and every evening. Was it really funny, even when to the lady thus unattired there entered a gentleman, either Monsieur Lamant or Monsieur Le Mari? Was only one thing funny, as some persons believed? Was it indeed really funny at all? Henry, who honestly desired to brighten his life, tried hard to think so, but failed and relapsed into gloom. He could not see that it was funnier that a female should not yet have completed her toilet than that a male should not. Neither was funny. Nothing, perhaps, was funny. The League of Nations was not funny, life was not funny, and probably not death. Even the British Bolshevist, which he was reduced to reading, wasn't funny, 
though it did have on the front page a column headed widow's leap saves cat from burning house a young man sat down at henry's little table and ordered drink a bright neat brisk young man with an alert manner glancing at the british bolshevist he made a conversational opening which elicited the fact that henry represented this journal at geneva for himself he was it transpired correspondent of the daily sale a paper to which the british bolshevist was politically opposed but temperamentally sympathetic they had the same cosy chatty touch on life the two correspondents amused themselves by watching the delegates and other foreign arrivals strolling to and fro along the elegant spaciousness of the quay chatting with one another they noticed little things to write to their papers about such as hats spats ways of carrying umbrellas and sticks and so forth they overheard fragments of conversation in many tongues for clustering round about the assembly were the representatives official and unofficial of nearly all the world's nations so that henry heard in the space of ten minutes british french italians russians poles turks americans armenians dutch irish lithuanians serb croat slovenes czechoslovakians the dwellers in dalmatia and istria and in the parts of latin america about brazil assyrio chaldeans and newspaper correspondents all speaking in their tongues the wonderful works of god geneva was like pentecost or the tower of babel there were represented there very many societies which regularly settled in geneva for the period of the assembly in order to send it messages trusting thus to bring before the league in session the good causes they had at heart the women's international league was there and the esperanto league and the non-alcoholic drink society and the mormons and the y m c a and the union of free churches and the unprotected armenians and the catholic association and the orthodox church union and the ethical society and the bolshevik refugees for it was in russia at the moment the turn of the other side and the save the children committee and the freemasons and the constructive birth control society and the feathered friends protection society and the negro equality league and the anti-divorce union and the humanitarian society and the eugenic society and the orangemen's union and the sinn feiners and the zionists and the saloon restoration league and the s p g and hundreds of unprotected minorities irresistibly or so they hoped moving in their appeals many of the representatives of these eager sections of humanity walked on the quai du mont blanc on this fine sunday afternoon and listened to the band and buttonholed delegates and their secretaries and chatted and spat the czechoslovakians spat hardest the costa ricans loudest the unprotected armenians most frequently and the serb croat slovenes most accurately but the assyrio chaldeans spat farthest the zionists did not walk on the quai they were holding meetings together and drawing up hundreds of petitions so that the assembly might receive at least one an hour from to-morrow onwards zionists do these things thoroughly motor-cars hummed to and fro between the hotels and the secretariat and inside them one saw delegates flags flew and music played and the jet d'eau sprang an immense crystalline tree of life a snowy angel up from the azure lake into the azure heavens henry gave a little sigh of pleasure he liked the scene. "'Will there be treats?' he asked his companion. "'I like treats.' "'Treats? Who for?' "'The delegates get treats all right, if you mean that.' "'For us, I meant.' "'Oh, yes, the correspondents get a free trip or a free feed now and then, too. I usually get out of them myself. Official beanos bore me. The town's very good to us. It wants the support of the press against rival claimants, such as Brussels.' "'I should enjoy a lake-trip very much,' said Henry. 
beginning to feel that it was good to be there. "'Well, don't forget to hand in your address, then, so that it gets on the list.' Henry was damped. Twenty-four Allée Petit Chat, Saint-Gervais. It sounded rotten, and would sound worse still to the Genevan syndics, who knew just where it was and what, and were even now engaged in plans for pulling down and rebuilding all the old wharfside quarter. No, he could not hand in that address. "'I suppose you've got to crab the show, whatever it does, haven't you?' said the daily sale-man presently. "'Now I'm out to pat it on the back, this year. I like that better. It's dull being disagreeable all the time. So obvious, too.' "'My paper is obvious,' Henry owned gloomily. "'Truth always is. You can't get round that.' "'Oh, well, come,' the other journalists couldn't stand that. "'It's a bit thick for one of your lot to start talking about truth. The lies you tell daily—' They have ours beat to a frazzle. Why, you couldn't give a straight account of a bus accident. We could not. That is to say, we would not, Henry admitted. But we lie about points of fact because our principles are true. They're so true that everything has to be made to square with them. If you notice, our principles affect all our facts. Yours don't, quite all. You'd report the bus accident from pure love of sensation. We, in reporting it, would prove that it happened because buses aren't nationalized or because the driver was underpaid, or the fare's too high, or because coal has gone up more than wages, or something true of that sort. We waste nothing. We use all that happens. We are propagandists all the time. You're only propagandists part of the time, and commercialists the rest. Oh, certainly no one would accuse you of being commercialists, agreed the saleman kindly. Hello, what's up? Henry had stiffened suddenly, and sat straight and rigid, like a dog who dislikes another dog. His companion followed his tense gaze, and saw a very neat, agreeable-looking, and gentlemanly fellow, exquisitely cleaned, shaved, and what novelists call groomed, one supposes this to be a kind of rubbing-down process to make the skin glossy, with grey spats, a malacca cane, and a refined grey suit with a faint stripe and creases like knife-blades. This gentleman was strolling by in company with the senior British delegate, who had what foreigners considered a curious and morbid fad for walking rather than driving even for short distances. "'Which troubles you?' inquired the representative of the daily sale. "'Our only Lord B., or that secretariat fellow?' "'That secretariat fellow,' Henry replied rather faintly. The other put on his glasses, the better to observe the neat, supercilious figure. He laughed a little. <laughs> "'Charles Wilbraham, our Gilbert, the perfect newt, the type that does us credit abroad.' makes up for the seedy delegates and journalists, what? He is said to have immense and offensive private wealth. In fact, it is obvious that he could scarcely present that unobtrusively opulent appearance on his official salary. They don't really get much, you know, poor fellows. Not for an expensive place like this. The queer thing is that no one seems to know where Wilbraham gets his money from. He never says. A very close, discreet chap. A regular civil servant. Do you know him, then?' Henry hesitated for a moment, appearing to think. He then replied in the pained and reserved tone in which Mr. Wickham might have commented on Mr. Darcy, "'Slightly, very slightly, as well as I wish. In fact, rather better. You wouldn't remember me. But I'll tell you one thing. But for a series of trivial circumstances, I too might have been—' "'Oh, well, never mind. Not, of course, that for any consideration I would serve in this ludicrous and impotent machine set up by the corrupt states of the world.' Wilbraham can. I could not. My soul, at least, is my own.' "'Oh, come,' remonstrated the other journalist. 
Come, come, surely not. But I must go and look up a few people. See you later on. Henry remained for a minute, broodingly watching the neat receding back of Charles Wilbraham. How happy and how proud it looked, that serene and elegant back! How proud and how pleased Henry knew Charles Wilbraham to be, walking with the senior British delegate whom everyone admired along the Quai du Mont Blanc! As proud and as happy as a prince! Henry knew better than most others Charles Wilbraham's profound capacity for proud and princely pleasure. He loved these assemblies of important persons, loved to walk and talk with the great. He had ever since the armistice contracted a habit of being present at those happy little gatherings, which had been, so far, a periodic feature of the great peace, and showed as yet no signs of abating. To Paris, Charles Wilbraham had gone in 1919, and how very near Henry had been to doing the same! How near, and yet how far! To San Remo he had been, to Barcelona and to Brussels, to Spa, to Genoa, even to Venice in the autumn of 1922, besides all the League of Nations assemblies. Where the eagles were gathered together, there, always, would Charles Wilbraham be. Henry winced at the thought of Charles's so great happiness. But let him wait. Only let Charles wait. Holy Mother of God! For Henry was a Roman Catholic. Only let him wait. End of section 1